tithing is a natural behavior. It's a restorative behavior that serves an important role. The fact is, is our society, though, has engineered standing and moving completely out of society. We have to reintroduce it so that we give people options, the full range of activity from sitting through vigorous exercise. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Greetings, everyone. This is Dan Pardee. So I am in the middle of writing a blog series right now on the effects of exercise, physical activity on the brain. Over the last 10 years or so, it's been shown that exercise is notably good for the health of our brain, the structure of our brain. It increases brain volume. It makes us more resistant to certain diseases. It makes us more resistant to damage from things like low oxygen conditions. And it can also help us think well. So there's two ways to think about this. There is an acute effect of doing physical activity and getting an immediate boost in thinking ability. But then there's also a longer-term effect, meaning that if you exercise regularly, then that has a beneficial effect on a variety of aspects of the brain. This is a topic that I find really, really interesting because with the right information, you can design your day to perform at your peak. And so... I've been exploring a bunch of ideas around this subject for a while, and it's been fun to write about it a little bit on the blog. Today I have with us Matt Buman. Matt and I met a few years ago at Stanford. Matt and I were put in contact with one another for a project where I was looking at the effects of vigilance or alertness on eating behaviors. Since then, he's now moved on to Arizona State University, where he is an assistant professor in the Department of Exercise Science and Health Promotion. But basically, Matt and I have a very high overlap of interests. A primary emphasis of Matt's research is to look at the relationships of various lifestyle factors to see how they relate. And he's also looking at different devices like Fitbits and Jawbones to see if they are good at promoting health behaviors and how good they are doing what they say they do. So without any further ado, let's welcome Dr. Matt Buman. Matt, it's so good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Why don't you start off by telling us how you got into what you're doing today? So what first interested you in sciences? Thanks, Dan, for having me on. I appreciate it. So I've sort of got an interesting background Back in undergrad, I was at the University of Utah in exercise and sports science and um, very interested in motivation, also interested in sports and athletics and trying to find a way to connect those two. And so my path is a little bit not the way that you would expect in that I started off both in undergrad and then in my master's program thinking about actually sports psychology. So how do we motivate athletes? How do we have peak performance in athletics using the mind, using motivation? And I was doing that for a while and realized that I could actually apply some of those concepts. If you can think about an athlete as sort of an ultra adherer to exercise, somebody who is relatively disciplined and is out there setting goals and reaching those goals physically, can we take those skills and principles and actually apply them to the general public for optimal health? And so that helped me make the transition into physical activity promotion. And then from there, I, I really realized that it's not all about physical activity, that there's so many other health behaviors that really fit together or are connected together. 
So that sort of helped me make that transition into what I'm doing today in terms of looking at wearable monitors, looking at various technology-mediated interventions and strategies to help people be healthier across a range of health behaviors. So yeah, that's what brought me to where I am today. That's great. So we met doing a project at Stanford. So tell us maybe what you were doing when you were there. Because when I met, I was introduced to you as somebody who is really knowledgeable in stats. We were doing a project related to sleep together. So how did you end up at Stanford? What were you doing there? So I was at Stanford at the Stanford Prevention Research Center doing a postdoctoral research fellowship, kind of additional training after a PhD, sort of an apprenticeship almost within academia, doing research in physical activity promotion, primarily in older adults. Um, It's funny you bring up the stats issue because I really see myself as a scientist in my areas and domains and disciplines of interest, but I am incredibly passionate about research methods and research stats. Not because I'm a math person or not because I think I'm a nerd necessarily, (laughs) but because I am just fascinated by what we can do when we apply research methods appropriately and when we can use statistics to our advantage to test really interesting questions. And so I always tell people I'm, I'm not a mathematician, I'm not a statistician, but I know how to use those tools. And because I know how to use those tools, I think that makes me a better scientist because I can think at the beginning of a project as to how would I design this project in a way to sort of maximize its value and be as efficient as possible with this, knowing the game of how you use methods and use statistics. And so, you know, I was influenced in this way, actually, in my PhD program by some really fantastic mentors. When I went to Stanford, I was able to use those skills a lot more in a lot of different contexts, one with you, Dan, and others, of course. And now, you know, as a professor at ASU, um, I'm really able to actually teach that to my graduate students and try to actually make a topic like statistics, which most people are very afraid of and don't want to have anything to do with, try to actually show it to them as a tool as opposed to something they have to learn, but try to get them excited about it. Yeah, that's great. And I think, like you said, one thing that you could do is ask interesting questions and questions that you have asked and done research on that I found fascinating is the intersection between physical activity and sleep. So how those two Mm. interrelate, how does sleep affect physical activity the next day and vice versa. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that research because both of those topics are fundamental to my interest in what I do. Yeah. And I think that we share that, of course. And, you know, the idea of sleep, given me as a physical activity researcher, was really fascinating. The way I started in this area was primarily looking at how physical activity, in addition to its many other health benefits, could help with people's sleep. Uh, People with mild or moderate sleep complaints all the way up to somebody with insomnia or sleep apnea and, and looking at how physical activity could impact sleep. And As I started to do that research, I actually realized that it's probably a two-way street in that physical activity can improve sleep, but then sleep can also improve physical activity. So we've done some studies that have actually looked at that over a 16-week period where we had people filling out logs and diaries about their physical activity and their sleep each and every day. And what we found, as we would expect, is that on average, people that were more physically active tended to also sleep better. And also on average, people that tended to sleep better also tended to be more physically active. But what I thought was more interesting was if you looked at it day to day, so today's physical activity and how that relates to tonight's sleep, we found that when you exercised more, that very next night you tended to sleep better. And then we flipped that around and we said on nights that you sleep better you tend to be more physically active the next day. And so we were able to show actually this sort of dynamic and reciprocal relationship between these two behaviors that 
sort of compounds itself over time. And that really got me interested in how these behaviors connect. What I'm doing today now is looking at how we can optimally spend our time across these behaviors. If you think about it, across a 24-hour period, we're doing one of three things. We're either sleeping, being sedentary, like sitting, or we're being physically active at some level, light intensity activity all the way up through exercise. And so how do we optimally spend our 24 hours? We know we need to sleep more. We've been told we need to sit less. And of course, we want to move more and be more physically active, but we can't be physically active all day long, right? There has to be this sort of a balance. And sometimes these behaviors can be at odds. For instance, when somebody is asked to exercise, you know, go run for 30 minutes or take a brisk walk for 30 minutes. Many times people choose to do that first thing in the morning and maybe even get actually 30 minutes less of sleep in order to fit that in. Or perhaps in the evening, they're adding that physical activity before sleep. And so that might actually impact sleep negatively. So trying to understand the time use of these behaviors in optimal fashion for health outcomes is sort of what I'm working on right now. Yeah, that's great. I've always thought about sleep and physical activity as opposite sides of the same coin in a way that they are reinforcing. So you, you sleep well, you feel more vigorous the next day to adhere to any you know, physical activity goals that you might have. And I do love the work that's talking about deconveniencing your life, getting off the bus a couple stops earlier and walking, using standing yep. desks. So instead of thinking yep. of physical activity just as something that happens in a gym or on a field, you actually kind of envision your entire day as an opportunity to either get in little exercise snacks or just fit it in and it all adds up and it all matters. Yeah. So some of the work that we've done recently is showing that absolute, like from a time perspective, physical activity is incredibly robust. So the 30 minutes a day you spend being physically active is very well worth it from a health perspective. But we can only do so much of that. And then well, there's the rest of the day, the rest of the 23 and a half hours of our day. How do we optimize that for health? How do we gain additional benefit? And it's absolutely clear now that, you know, it seems that independent of that physical activity, moving more, doing more light intensity activity, taking the stairs instead of taking the elevator, just getting up and moving throughout the day, even moving from a sitting to a standing posture, like in a standing desk, has additional health benefit on top of an independent physical activity. And so, yeah, that's actually a recent area of my work is looking at how do we sort of target the rest of the day? (laughs) Yes, we want to get people physically active, but some people aren't able to, don't want to. It may be difficult for them or they're already doing that and could receive additional benefit from something else. So we're looking at strategies, including standing desks and other things. And we're focused in the workplace right now, but there's huge opportunity both in schools and in the home and in many other contexts to sort of work in additional activity throughout the day. And it's funny because when you talk to people, you tell them about this. The first thing I always say is, don't be scared. I'm not talking about exercise. I'm not going to ask you to exercise. Um, I'm going to ask you to stand up. (laughs) I'm going to ask you to maybe take a few extra steps throughout your day. And diffusing it that way, I think, you know, sets people at ease and gets them to think outside the box about how they can integrate activity into what they're already doing without having to plan additional time. So your sports psychology background is coming back now to permeate all that you're doing, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. The idea of, you know, finding different ways of motivation and getting people interested, I think, yeah, absolutely. It does come back full circle, I suppose. Yeah, I think reframing things can be very powerful. And one issue that I see is that a lot of the visions of exercise that are permeated throughout our culture are like really high intensity where people are sweating, they're exhausted. 
And if you're fit and you get a great workout like that, it can feel really good. But it can also, for those that are less fit or that's intimidating, it can, I think, serve as a barrier to do what I call mundane but meaningful things. Because you think that in order for this to be beneficial, I've got to be killing myself in exercise class. I work at home and I've got a little garage space where I've got a standing desk, I've got a treadmill, and I call it my lab because I'm always testing (laughs) out things. And one emphasis for my physical activity practice is feeling really good and feeling sharp. And I'm writing a series right now on the cognitive aspects of exercise. So the first blog was looking at blood flow and it was pretty interesting. So around 60% maximal effort, then you get an enhancement of brain blood flow. And then as it gets more intense, because of the pressure of oxygen, the blood flow will actually decrease back to baseline. Yeah, And so... Thinking about that, I actually not just stand at my desk, which feels really good. If you haven't done it before, it can take a couple of weeks before you feel really comfortable doing it for long periods of time. But then you can't go back. (laughs) You can't go back. But then also during the day, I'm actually moving throughout the day. So I'll just run in place and I'll maybe do some jump rope or I, I try to just mix in some lighter intensity stuff. And it actually keeps me in a really positive, energetic state. So it's funny to kind of think of things that way. Like, how am I? can I cultivate my own best performance throughout the day? Yeah, what you're mentioning is really fascinating. We're actually just finishing up a lab-based study that you might find interesting based upon that. So there's a lot of debate in the literature about, you know, is this whole idea of sedentary behavior, and you've heard this sort of sitting kills and sitting is the new smoking, and, you know, we can get back to this. I think that's overblown. I think that there's a real question. It's clear that independent of physical activity, how much time we're sitting has a negative impact on our health and our cognitive function and a number of other health outcomes. It's not clear whether this is just an issue of, well, when you sit, you don't expend a lot of energy or whether it's about something unique about the posture of sitting versus standing. So there's the issue, should I get a standing desk or should I get a treadmill desk, right? Do I need to be moving to get benefit or is just standing going to help me? So we actually designed a study where we had the same group of office workers come in, about 10 of them, and they came in the same day of the week for four weeks. And we randomized them to a condition throughout that day in sort of our mock office. One condition was where they sat all day long. So this is sort of our control condition. We had them sit basically the whole day, except when they needed to take a break for lunch and take restroom breaks, that sort of thing. But they did their job throughout the day. We had another condition where we had them stand for about 150 minutes uh, cumulatively across the day. So they simply stood. They didn't move. They just stood up at various intervals that we told them when to do that. We had a third condition where they cycled. So they stayed seated. They stayed seated, but they had a peddler under their chair. So you might have seen some of these. These are out on the market now where you can stay seated, but you've got this peddler. And then the fourth condition was like a walking workstation. So they stood and then they moved. So what we were trying to get at experimentally was to separate the effect of standing from the posture changes and the effect of energy expenditure. So the walking workstation had both increases in energy expenditure and increases in posture, while the cycling only had increases in energy expenditure, which matched the energy expenditure changes for the walking workstation. And then the standing condition matched the posture changes for the walking workstation. We had some really interesting outcomes. So one thing we found using um, continuous glucose monitoring is that on average, the postprandial after meal spikes in glucose, which are normal, were actually dampened in all three groups relative to control. So we had significant improvement, whether you're just standing 
whether you're cycling or whether you're walking. We had improvements across all three. We also found improvements in blood pressure. So small changes over time in ambulatory blood pressure. So we took continuous measurements of blood pressure every 15 minutes. Okay. And what I'm most interested and excited about, and this is what your comment made me think about, is that we also found improvements in cognition in all three conditions. So faster reaction times and a number of other executive functioning uh, decision-making types of outcomes, we found improvements in all three conditions relative to the control. Interestingly, our hypothesis was that the walking workstation would be best. It combined both posture and expenditure changes. But interestingly, I would say, is that we actually found the best effects were for the cycling. Oh, wow. We're not even sure exactly why that is. We think it might have to do with the novelty of that behavior. Mm-hmm. People aren't as accustomed to cycling as they are to walking, of course. Yeah. But we need to follow up more on that to understand why that is. But the bigger picture is that you can get these kind of benefits simply from standing and perhaps greater benefits if you're moving more in addition to the standing. I've never tried one of the cycling desk setups. I'd have to see how awkward that felt to actually then do work. But I have to admit, I was surprised. I don't use a treadmill desk now. Usually if I have a call, I vent treadmill and I walk at two and a half miles an hour. But there was a while where I was working on it and I found that there were some things I could do pretty well and I was surprised. I was surprised that it didn't seem like a gimmick, like I could actually get work done on it. Yeah, but now I think I just prefer to do it this way. So I'm standing, walking, sitting, and I listen to my body too. So if I'm tired, I'll take a break and and relax. And what's your setup like? I have like a standing desk at my office. So it's one of those aftermarket units I have different setups at home and at work. At work, I have aftermarket desk unit that goes on top of my desk, and I can raise and lower that for standing. So no walking options. At home, I have a full desk that goes up and down. You know, you press a button and it comes up and down. Yeah. I don't have options to move in either location, although our workspace has some shared treadmill desks. So I can jump on those like you, sort of like taking a call, responding to email, doing something relatively mundane. I think the interesting point that you made, though, about sort of like sometimes I just need to listen to my body and sit. I think that's really important. I think sometimes people feel like, well, if I get a desk now, I have to stand all the time. The whole point is just to give you options. Yeah. I mean, right now, if you go into any workplace, you don't have a lot of options if you want to stand. Pretty much if you walk into a conference room, there's a bunch of chairs in the room and not a lot of places to stand. And so the idea of having a standing desk or a walking workstation is just to give you an additional option so that you don't have to be sitting all day long. And that sort of gets to my other point of, I think that this idea of sitting as the new smoking and really sort of demonizing sitting, I think is, is not well advised because I think it makes people feel guilty (laughs) anytime they sit. And sitting is a natural behavior. It's a restorative behavior that serves an important role. The fact is, is our society, though, has engineered standing and moving completely out of society. So we have to reintroduce it so that we give people options, the full range of activity from sitting all the way through vigorous exercise. That's really good input. It's not that sitting's bad. We do it too much and there's the absence of other things that are good. So part of what an exercise program that I created is called Intune and it stands Mm -hmm. for Integrative Opportunistic Training. So the idea is that you're integrating movements into your day and you're doing it in an opportunistic fashion. You finish an email and then you do some bodyweight squats or you do some push-ups. And actually, I do this, I have to admit, it was almost serendipitous where I started to do it to try to get more physical activity into my day. But now, Mm -hmm. again, I do it to actually promote cognitive enhancement. So before a call or whatever, and you just get yourself into that zone where you're feeling you've got good verbal fluidity, good recall. It's like that feeling you get after 
great exercise where you just feel yeah. you feel sharp and lucid. But the other aspect of in-tune training that I like is that it's not just this integrating movement into your day in an opportunistic fashion, but you're also in tune with your body. So one thing I don't like about training protocols, oftentimes it's like, hey, go this hard regardless of how you feel. But I think it's really good to try to get get in touch with your body. What is it telling you? Do you feel like doing something more intense? Do you feel like take, sitting, taking a nap, and actually developing a relationship with yourself where you trust it? So when you're feeling robust, yeah. you get some activity, and when you're not, you have other options, and you're always kind of giving your body what it needs. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really good thing for durability of a good physical activity practice because then you're not going to be always avoiding it because you're always giving yourself what your body wants. And I think that's been really important for my consistency over the last couple of years. Right, right. And it falls right in line with what we know about motivation. I mean, it's all about autonomy and enjoyment. I mean, it's all about giving people options, helping them to choose so they don't feel like they have to do this one thing where they have options. And then most importantly, that they just enjoy it. So, you know, this whole, as you alluded to, sort of high intensity interval training, you know, people sort of ask, what do you think of that? Well, if people like it, then they should do it. And if they don't like it, they shouldn't do it. <laughs> so and they should find something else. There's plenty of ways to be active and to move, you know, at a huge range of activities. And so, listening to your body minute to minute, and then also just choosing things that you truly enjoy. Those are the things, you know, doing an activity that you don't like, you'll probably get up through a month of it, maybe if you have really good discipline, but that's not really going to make a lifelong impact. Yeah, I could not agree more. The single most important thing about exercise and physical activity is finding stuff that you enjoy and just doing that. Dan Butner from Blue Zones has a really interesting quote where he says, out of the 30 different societies that we looked at that are centenarians or super centenarians, Dan Butner's an author for listeners mm-hmm. just that, who writes about populations around the world that reach 100 or, or beyond, that age well. And he commented that all of them don't exercise as we think of it, but they do have physical activity integrated throughout their day because they tend to be societies that have kind of this dual combination of access to modern medicine, but they live a more rustic lifestyle. And so they have walks, they get light exposure, they're getting, they're getting physical, like they're carrying things in their day. So that's a really interesting perspective. So what tools do you use personally? Yeah, I know that you do assessments with the latest and greatest quantified self-trackers, where do you see the value in those? Have you felt any have augmented your own physical activity practice? So I kind of think about this from a number of different perspectives. So on one side, I use these tools as a consumer to better my own life. And then I use them as a researcher. I do a lot of research in terms of validating these types of sensors for their accuracy relative to gold standard measures. As a researcher, I'm very interested in these tools because I really want to try to find the best tools we can use to most accurately measure behaviors that are occurring in real life. And so many of these tools give us that ability to do that in ways that we have never been able to do before. These tools are, as you know, very wearable, things that people are willing to wear 24 hours a day for weeks and months and years upon end, which is nothing in the research that we've been able to do before. Here's where I kind of fall. I'll start with the research and then end with my own personal experiences and show some of the middle ground there that I see is from a research perspective, unfortunately, I think many of these tools are not quite up to the challenge of being able to be a true evaluative tool for us yet. Meaning, can these tools 
accurately measure behaviors in free living in a way to be able to test interventions and different strategies and various outcomes. I think that right now you have some challenges in terms of the transparency of the tools and how we can use them and what kinds of outcomes are coming from them. There isn't any sort of unifying structure across these outcomes, and that makes it difficult from a research perspective. And the personal perspective, they're fantastic. I mean, the whole quantified self movement just shows you just how excited people are to know and gain insights and be able to test and experiment on their own health outcomes. And there's so much greater awareness. Unfortunately, I think that most has targeted the healthier individuals and much of it has left out kind of the people that need it the most, so to speak. I mean, I think that more work is being done in that area as the field matures. The greatest utility that I see for these tools is sort of in the middle in terms of complementing existing programs and strategies to get people healthy. Yeah. So this might be a program that is already in existence that is now leveraging this to make their program more effective. They're bringing in these tools to make that person more informed and to integrate that information into an existing program. So that's very promising. On the clinical side, I see huge, huge opportunities in terms of using these tools in a manner to enhance the clinical relationship. So, you know, many people are bringing their Fitbits into their doctor's office and saying, hey, look how many steps I get. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of clinicians don't know what to do with that information yet. Right. And we need more knowledge in terms of how can we leverage these tools in clinical environments? How can we make the relationship between the patient and the provider more effective through better communication, more knowledge, knowledge going both ways uh, using these types of tools. And I think that's where you're, we're going to see the most growth in the next few years. And I think that's where these tools might have the greatest impact on overall health. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that sentiment. And there was a line that I have from a presentation that I gave on quantified self. And it's like, you know, can these modify behaviors? And, you know, that's kind of a debate. I think the question is, can it modify behaviors that matter in a meaningful way forever in some populations, (laughs) right? So it may not work for everybody, but it could still be a valuable tool for a lot of different people. And we've not yet tested every possible way to reach as many people as possible, right? As you were saying, there are some underserved populations, people that need it the most. And I think these tools are best served when they're a part of an ecosystem that promotes important behaviors in meaningful ways through a variety of techniques. So it's not just tracking and triggering, it's doing other things as well, giving people very clear ideas of what they can do and it's giving people education and all that. So- The other side of it for me is that, you know, depending upon the company and the device, they measure huge numbers of things. And some of them matter, some of them don't. And some of them are not very transparent of exactly what it is that they're measuring. And so I think we would benefit greatly if there could be some level of consensus of what is most important that these tools develop and can measure well. And so that if you buy a Fitbit or a Jawbone or whatever other device, that you have some level of confidence that you can track what you want to track and you can track something that's of great meaning and has an actual impact on health. And I think right now that there's just no consensus within the field as to what it is we want to measure. And so, you know, things are relatively diffuse at this point. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's that's good because we could launch into a whole other conversation. <laughs> but maybe we can bring you back and extend the conversation on sleep and more tracking in, in the future. But mm-hmm. thank you so much for coming onto the show. That was really interesting stuff. Clearly, a ton of overlap with my own interests. So thanks for the work that you do, and I uh, appreciate you coming on. Yeah, Dan, my pleasure. It's great to chat with you. Yeah, always, man. Take care. Thanks for listening, and come visit us soon at humanos.me.